Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for uh, joining us here on this uh, beautiful day, this uh, uh, early August long weekend, and uh, joining us for a special outdoor service. You know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure exactly when it happened, uh, nor the exact day or the time, but at some point in late 2008 or in 2009, God died. The evidence was overwhelming. The, the stories, the social media, the testimonies just didn't stop coming. And the evidence that for many people, God had died. And because God was dead, many of his followers, many of his worshipers, they lost hope. And when you lose hope, often depression follows. And for some of those who get depressed, they find no meaning left in life. It was a very, very tough time for many people who used to follow and worship God. Now, your God is determined by what you put your trust in. Therefore, for so many people who put their trust in money, if you remember in 2008, 2009, there was quite a turn in the economy. And a lot of people lost a lot of money. A lot of people lost a lot of jobs. Therefore, without money, without financial security, without work, a lot of people felt like their God died. They had no hope. They had no reason. There are actually many gods in this world. And they're, the gods are at battle in our life. Now maybe for you, um, money isn't that big of an issue, that big of a focus. So maybe, maybe money isn't, isn't your god. But there are many, many gods that we can identify that are at battle in our lives. <coughs> Is it possible that uh, your god may be the need for power or control? Maybe it's a really strong, important relationship with a friend or a family member. Maybe it's your public status, how people think about you, public recognition. Maybe you're really consumed with food, either, either that or maybe, maybe intelligence is really important to you. Maybe you're really consumed with education and, and your intelligence level. For some people, they're very consumed with alcohol. For others, it may be a legal or illegal drug that is consuming all the time. And you know what? Unfortunately, it's not the first time God died in 2008, 2009. For many people, God has died many, many times over the years. I mean, financially, there's the Great Depression, there's Black Friday, you go way back in history. For some people, God died when 
they lost a family member. God died when they lost a friend. There's many different reasons why people believe that God is dead. Now you might be thinking, why am I talking about gods? Or maybe mentioning idols, you know, here this morning. I mean, it's 2015 already, right? Like, who, who talks about, in the North American culture, who talks about gods and idols anymore? Like, that's, that's something they do over in Africa. That was something that we read about in the Bible. It's not relevant today. So, Brian, why are you talking about it? We're supposed to talk about stuff that's relevant to us. Well, I want to say, don't deceive yourselves. This world, our culture, our city, is full of gods and idols. So if we're going to talk about God, and we're going to talk about gods, I think we need to have an understanding of what we're talking about. If you've heard me talk before, I like to turn to the dictionary, and I like to define words, so we all kind of understand exactly what we're talking about on an even playing field. So I like to turn to you know, dictionary.com. Um, I don't like to lug out the big Webster dictionary. It's a lot easier just to punch in dictionary.com. But before I read you the, the dictionary uh, definition, does anybody want to take a crack at defining God? God with a big G. Kind of tough, isn't it? Kind of put it into a sentence? Is that you volunteering, Tracy? <laughs> dictionary definition? How would you define? How would you define God? Could you define God in one sentence? <laughs> well, here's how dictionary.com defines God, okay? God with a big G. The one supreme being, the creator and ruler of the universe. I think it's a pretty decent definition, you know, for, uh, for dictionary.com. So now let's define God with a small g. Is that any easier for anybody? Yeah, good answer. Anybody else? Okay. A couple good answers. Okay. Well, let's see what dictionary.com says. Dictionary.com actually splits uh, the definition up to defining a small g god as a noun and as a verb. And you might be kind of wondering how that works, but just listen to the two definitions, because it's quite interesting how they, uh, how they break it up. So small g God, as a noun, is defined as a supreme being according to some particular concept. Okay? Now, small g God as a verb. To regard or treat as a deity or Idolization, to idolize something. Turn with me, if you would, this morning, if you have your Bibles. If not, I'll, I'll try and read it out here, to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to have a quick drink here. So some will be uh, 
Some will be familiar. Some will be familiar with uh, some of the verses, maybe in, in Joshua 24. But let me uh, let me just kind of summarize quickly. I don't want to assume everybody here knows much about Joshua. So Joshua was a great uh, leader of the Israelites. He took over for Moses uh, after Moses passed away, and he's the actual one that God used to lead the Israelites into Israel to win many battles and to take over uh, the land that God had promised them and to establish the nation of Israel. And you're talking, you know, you're not talking a few hundred people or a few thousand, you're talking about people in the millions that Joshua was leading. And so the book of Joshua kind of records the life of Joshua and, and the, the victories that God gave him. And in chapter 24, we're kind of reaching right at the end of Joshua's life. But a quick little interesting note is actually if you if you just flip over to uh, Joshua 23, a lot of the Bibles will have entitled Joshua's Farewell. And so in, in chapter 23, Joshua thought that his life was coming to an end. So he called together all the Israelites, called together all the leaders, and he gave them, uh, he gave them a significant challenge. In verse six it says, be strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you must hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. But the interesting thing was he called together all the nations. He thought he was at the end of life. He gave him a big speech, a big challenge like that. And God said, Joshua, you're not done yet. I still, have, I still have things for you to do on this earth. So Joshua, here now in 24, we read again, verse 1, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. So here he is. He did that once. All right. Now he's got to do it all again because now he is truly in his final days. And so he's got all the... All the people of Israel, he's got. He's called all the leaders of the tribes right up front, right up close. And it says, and they presented themselves before God. So it would have been pretty important. It would have been, you know, like coming to the temple. They would have had to go through rituals of being clean. Probably a great chance that the Ark of the Covenant was there. This, this was a big gathering. This was, I think, a, a step higher than what we read about in chapter 23. Verse 2, Joshua says to all, said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. So for the next 11 to 12 verses here, Joshua is speaking on God's behalf, almost speaking exactly God's words. And I'm going to kind of skim through those verses, but what I'm going to give you is I'm going to give you some of the action words that God includes so what Joshua talks about in those verses, he basically summarizes kind of what God has accomplished from the time of Abraham right up to now. God wants Joshua to highlight to the people what God has been doing. And so we read phrases like, but I took, I gave, I assigned, I sent, what I did, and I brought, what I did, I brought, 
I gave, I destroyed, I delivered, but I gave, I sent, so I gave you. And every time you, I, I refers to God, not to Joshua, but to God. It's a summary. God is reminding the people of Israel what he has done for them. When we hit verse 14, now Joshua is speaking more from Joshua. He's not speaking, God, you know, not quoting God. And Joshua says, now, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a pretty strong challenge to all the Israelites. And the question is, is why such a challenge at this time? Why, why, why this particular challenge? Why is there a challenge to not serve other gods, but to serve the one and only God? Well, for Josh and many of the Israelites, what did they have? They had the Ark of the Covenant. What was, there was three things in the Ark and the Ten Commandments was one of the main things in there for these people to read and to focus on. It was their, their guideline for their lives, basically, was the Ten Commandments. And so Josh is wanting to, you know, by the direction of God, to emphasize what the most important thing for them to do in their lives is. So let's just turn quickly to Exodus 20, if you'd like to follow me. Verse 1. I'm not going to read all the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to read the first two. Exodus 20, verse 1. And the Lord spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any idol in the form of anything in heaven, in, sorry, in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, and a jealous God. I found an interesting quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, you can't first break any other law without first breaking this first commandment. You can't first do anything against God. You can't first sin without breaking this first commandment of having some other focus, some, something other of greater importance than big G God. 
if you go further down in Joshua verse 19, as we just read in Exodus 25, a very common phrase between the two of them. It states, God is a jealous God. God created us, therefore he loves us. And his love is so great that when we don't choose to serve him, then he has a righteous jealousness for us. Okay, so it's supposed to be jealousy, but you know, I thought jealousness, you know, was kind of created, maybe it might stick in your head, you know, maybe if you don't remember anything else from this morning, maybe you'll walk away going, I can't believe he said jealousness. But yes, God has such a righteous jealousy for us that it hurts him when we don't look to him first and foremost. Do me a favor for a second. Just play along with me here. Close your eyes for just one minute. I want you to picture a palace. I want you to picture your heart, your soul, as the most beautiful palace that you can imagine. Lots of gold, lots of diamonds, huge, big walls, fortresses around. I want you to picture that palace as your heart, as your soul. Now I want you to picture yourself walking across the bridge, entering into this palace, walking through the big open courtyard. Now you're entering back into, into the palace. You're entering into the king's throne room. And in the throne room, all your eyes can focus on is one big, beautiful throne. Nothing else there, just that one chair, that one throne. Okay, if you haven't fallen asleep, you can open your eyes again. That throne, that throne was made by God, because God made us. He made that throne inside of each of us. And therefore, it's rightfully his. And he doesn't want to share control of your heart, your soul, with anybody. He wants to be in control of that, that throne, on that throne. But you know what? God's not the only one who wants to be there. Satan and his workers, they love to take control of the thrones of people's hearts, too. And they do it in very interesting ways, very sneaky ways, very obvious ways sometimes. And we need to be aware that there's a spiritual battle going on for that throne in our heart. So if it's true that there are gods at war for that throne in our lives, how do we help identify, how do we, how do we watch out for them, watch out for their attacks, or maybe um, our throne isn't occupied by God right now. Maybe there's, maybe there's a God or God's in our throne right now, but we haven't really recognized it. So how do we do that? Well, I've got some questions. I'll just kind of ask the questions, and, and you can think about them and see um, just what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you as you think about the question. First question. What has left you the most disappointed in life? Something that you put a lot of great importance in. Something that you put a lot of trust in. 
but it left you disappointed. What do you sacrifice your time and money for here in this life? Where's your, where's your biggest investments? Where do they go? Time and money. What do you worry about the most? Who do you worry about the most? Do you have a great over-concern about something or someone? There's something out there that has your focus and your attention because it really scares you. As I was preparing, this is, this is probably the, the question that kind of hit me the most. Where do you go when you are hurt? Where do you go for comfort? Where do you seek love or satisfaction when you're hurt? Or when you need comfort? From who or from what? How about what makes you mad? Do you get mad at things because you feel there's been an injustice? So what makes you mad? Are you mad continually right now? It's one certain thing tip you off so easily? What do you dream of? What is your dream here in life? What's your, what's your, what's your ultimate goal? What do you have such a strong passion for day in and day out? As I said earlier, God is jealous for you. And the good news is that he will put himself in direct opposition with any idol, any god, who might be sitting on the throne that belongs to him. I think one thing we don't do is we, we don't realize how much of a spiritual being we are. We know we're physical beings, you know, everybody around us is, is physical, we see stuff, and because we see it, or we touch it, or we hear it, then it's on our minds daily. It's more real to us. And we forget that as being made in God's image, we're also very much spiritual beings. And we forget the spiritual side of things or we have very little focus on how much of a spiritual being that we are and as I've been talking about this morning there's a spiritual warfare going on it's very active God God wants you to be spiritually alive he really does Satan Satan would prefer you to be spiritually dead he doesn't want you to think about that aspect he wants you to kind of ignore it or if not dead, at least kind of non-responsive. You know, in the medical field, you know, someone who's alive but non-responsive, no, not much there. So Richard did a great job for me of reading in Acts. So if you'd like to turn to Acts 17, I'll try and tie in for us why I had Richard read that. So Acts 17, verse 16, we're back at. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Well, who is, who is them? Why was Paul waiting there? Well, 
if you skip back to verse 15, it tells us that uh, that he was waiting for uh, for Silas and Timothy to join him. So Paul was in Athens, he's hanging out, he was waiting for his friends to come. And Paul, he was greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. Not disturbed, not kind of upset, but he was greatly distressed. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. If God were to look around your heart today, what would he see? Like Paul looking around Athens, picture God looking around your heart. If God sees gods or idols in your heart on the throne that belongs to him, he will reason with us like Paul did day in and day out. Have you ever, or maybe you're currently responding, like the Athens did, asking, what is this babbler trying to say? I don't get it. I don't understand. God's message just maybe not real clear to you right now. We scoot down to verse 26. And it reads, From one man who made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and, be t and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God is in control. He is the creator, as we read earlier in the definition. And he wants each one of us this is, this is the good news. This is exciting news. He wants each one of us to reach out to him as he reaches out to us. He's not far away. As some would say and some songs say, you know, God is right here. He's right there in your heart. He's battling for that throne if he's not sitting on the throne. He's a jealous God. He wants us to not hear him as a babbler, but to understand his message of love through his son, Jesus Christ, for us. It's, it's a war, and God will not settle for our truce. He's not willing to sit down at the table with Satan and just kind of work out a common ground. No. He wants to sit alone on the throne of our heart. Remember, it's a throne. It's a single seat. It's not a love seat. It's not a couch. It's not a big sectional. There's not room on that throne for anyone else but God. I think there's one, one more thing as I wrap up here. One more thing I need to uh, make sure that we understand. 
something doesn't have to be evil or be outright wrong to become an idol in their lives. God's idols can be very difficult to identify because they can start as a gift from God, but when the gift takes the place of the giver, destruction will often follow. And a quick example of that is Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were promised by God to have a son. And they waited, and they waited. They were 100 years old when they got a son. Can't imagine the, the joy of their lives and how they took care of him to the best of their abilities. And if you read on in the story, at one point, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac's, you know, probably early teens or whatever. And you would, in reading the story, you wonder, why in the world? You just, you just gave the gift to them, and now you're going to take it away like this? So some people would reason that the reason that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son was because the gift, Isaac, became a greater importance, a greater focus to Abraham and or Sarah than God himself. And so he challenged them and said, who do you love more? Are you willing to sacrifice your son? Or are you not willing to sacrifice your son? Do you love me more or do you love your son more? Do you love the giver or the gift more? In the words of Joshua, choose today whom you will serve. And if you're not serving God fully, may I suggest that you pull out the white flag of surrender so that God can sit solely on the throne of your heart that he made. Maybe for the first time, or maybe he just needs to be back there, but either way, hopefully for a lifetime. Please, please.